Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are going to begin our longest section on through Nicaea, and that's going to be on begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. And really, um, those are tied together, and so begotten, not made is going to be the primary focus with everything else kind of rippling. So this is going to be the longest section because it's the least understood uh, section. Um, And really... The way that I broke up the creed could be misleading in terms of the structure of the creed um, because the bulk of the paragraph is actually emphatic on the same points and is bookmarked by this doctrine of generation. In fact, once I say this, you'll, you'll probably pick it up. And so let's read it. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So there's your first note of generation. Born of the Father generation, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. So all of those things deal with generation. And because of that emphasis, we're going to spend a good amount of time on begottenness of the son or generation or being born of the father before all ages uh, because of our lack of familiarity. So this episode will focus on the history of eternal generation of the son Um, just to really show that uh, this was in the church. It wasn't pulled out of a hat. And so let's actually begin by laying out some definitions for eternal generation of the Son. And then whenever we start the next episode, um, I'll probably repeat some of these. So the Pocket Theological Terms Dictionary states, the phrase used to describe the relationship that exists between the first and second persons of the Trinity— God the Father is said to generate or beget the Son eternally. In other words, the Son's identity as the Son is defined eternally by his relationship to the Father. Likewise, the Father is eternally the Father by his eternal relationship to the Son. The generation of the Son is not to be confused with physical conception or birth, whereby a human father begets a son who did not previously exist. Louis Burkhoff says that, By means of eternal generation, the Father is the cause of the personal existence of the Son within the divine being. Robert Lethem states that eternal generation is the unique property of the Son in relation to the Father. Since God is eternal, the relationship between the Father and the Son are eternal. This is not to be understood on the basis of human generation or begetting. Since God is spiritual, it is beyond our capacity to understand. So the stress here is ultimately the way in which the Father and Son are distinguished according to Scripture and relate to one another. Uh, And so their terms of relation are the begetter and the begotten. Now, Louis Burkhoff, uh, his, his definition can really throw you. By means of eternal generation, the Father is the cause of the personal existence of the Son within the divine being. Now, this is the traditional view. And we've talked about this leading up to all of this. And this does not diminish aseity because aseity is um, linked to nature. And John Calvin, we're going a little bit beyond Nicaea just for this one point. John Calvin was helpful in emphasizing 
that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each are God of themselves. And this is really what's found in this creed, and that's really what we're seeing here in these debates, that the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before ages, is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. So we need to stress that. And that's really what all this debate's going to um, be down here. So one more quote before we move into the history. Kevin Giles notes the clear limitation of human language, right? And especially when using it in regards to God. We cannot understand terms like begotten in a literal sense. We can't apply them perfectly from, from what we understand in humanity to God. And Kevin Giles says, Thus calling God Father, for example, certainly tells us something about the first person of the Trinity, but only the whole of Revelation can tell us what this fatherhood is because the divine father in so many ways is not like the human father. He does not have a father himself. He is not married. He does not impregnate. He does not grow old. Further, Giles says, what this means is that the word begotten when used of the divine son cannot be understood in terms of human begetting, most obviously because although he had an earthly birth in a human mother, he also existed before his human birth and incarnation, yet he had no divine mother. The early theologians settled on the terms begotten to speak of the eternal generation of the Son because they found it repeatedly in Scripture. They were nevertheless well aware of its limitations, as we will see. The theological use of the term makes the infinite difference between human begetting and divine begetting explicit by the addition of the word eternal. What is temporal is part of the world that God created. What is eternal is divine. And he goes on to further define eternal generation as the eternal self-differentiation within the life of God in eternity for which the human words begetting and generation in relation to the Son are the best words available. So this is, this is kind of how I heard um, another individual sum it up. That whenever we hear eternal begetting or eternal generation we tend to focus on generation or begetting. We need to really start with eternal. Eternal is the key distinction here um, in terms of the debates. And one more quick definition that will be helpful has to do with the divine rule of monarchia. And Kevin Giles is helpful here. He says, according to Athanasius and the Cappadocians, divine rule is triune. The divine three rule as one, and he mentions this matter because so many books confuse the terms of monarchia, which is used to speak of divine rule, and the cognate term monarchy, which is used to speak of the Father as a sole source of origin of the Son and the Spirit. Now, Kevin Giles, I've, I've read a few works. I've, I've read about a thousand pages on eternal generation at this point, and I have a couple more on the way. But the two books that I would recommend on this are Eternal Generation of the Sun by Kevin Giles and Retrieving Eternal Generation by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain. Of course, they're the editors, and so it's a compilation of different essays. You will find conflicting points on them, especially in terms of the word monogamous. We'll discuss that in the next episode. Something to note about Kevin Giles is that he is egalitarian, and so his thrust at the end is how we can't use um, Eternal Subordination of the Sun, which is a new move, newer movement, at least within Christianity, um, to argue for complementarianism, which as a classical Trinitarian at this point, I would agree with him because we can't export human relations onto the Trine Godhead, regardless of whether or not we hold to eternal subordination or um, classical Trinitarianism. But it's important to know that he is egalitarian, uh, but he is his book is 
one of the few thorough treatments on Eternal Generation that I could find. And it's it's really well done. I have to give them credit where credit's due. And Robert Leatham wrote the forward. So that's kind of interesting. And I'm actually reading a journal on a disagreement Robert Leatham has with Giles. So uh, it's always kind of cool to see those those types of, uh, I don't know, mutual respect, I suppose. Anyway, let's get into the historical discussion. And we're going to begin with a lengthy quote by Kevin Giles. Uh, to summarize, so since the time of Justin Martyr in the second century, the language of begetting was used to speak of the self-differentiation of the father and the son with monotheism taken as an axiom. Within the prolonged and heated fourth century dispute between the supporters of the creed of Nicaea and those who opposed it because they could not confess that Jesus Christ was one in being with the father, the focal issue that divided the warring sides was whether or not the son was temporally created or eternally begotten. If the son's begetting alluded to his creation in time, as all of the so-called Arians of the 4th century argued, then the son was a creature no matter how elevated, and thus he was subordinate to God. If, however, his begetting implied an eternal generative act in which the father shared his being with the son, as Athanasius and those who followed him argued, then the son was true God from true God, one in being with the father, co-eternal and co-equal God. Athanasius and all the Nicene theologians saw clearly that to speak of the Son as God eternally begun, not only safeguarded his full divinity, but also indelibly distinguished him from the Father. If the Son is true God, then he is not subordinate in being and power to the Father. And if he is begotten God and the Father unbegotten God, then the two divine persons cannot be identified and confused. The grounding of the two essential elements of the Nicene faith, divine unity and equality and divine differentiation and threeness, is what made this doctrine so theologically important for the Nicene fathers. Really a helpful summary of the historical um, discussion. And this is really just to say that the begottenness of the Son was recognized amongst all people, Arians and Nicene Christians. But the debate really was whether or not the Son was begotten in time, or outside of time. For the Arians, begotten and created were uh, synonyms. And so for the Arians, the son was begotten and created in time. While for the Nicenes, the son was begotten outside of time. And this one idea is crucial here. The temporal, that which is in time, characterizes God's creative work, while the eternal characterizes God and his unchanging being. So most people here would start with Justin Martyr in terms of talking about eternal generation, but I actually wanted to go back a little bit further. We can easily discuss the Nicene Christian's understanding of eternal generation, but I wanted to speak about what kind of set the precedence for this understanding prior to just murder, or even prior to John the Apostle. Um, because often there's this dichotomy placed between Christianity and Judaism. Um, and this is really around Logos Christology or wisdom Christology. And this dichotomy is often exaggerated because of Hellenism and Greek philosophy and things of that nature. Uh, and I want to say before we begin, I am fully aware that debates just rage on on this entire subject. And so my thesis, if you will, is basically that there is a precedence leading to where the early church went with it, minimally. Um, some would see this section as irrelevant to the discussion of eternal generation and more relevant for pre-existence of Christ. I, I find that they're very closely related especially in terms of how they understand texts like Proverbs 8, which will be pulled by the church several times for eternal generation. Um, so if you're looking at Proverbs 8 with Athanasius, and you're like, well, where is he pulling this, this idea of generation and preexistent wisdom from? I would have to say I'm, I'm tempted 
to just flat out say that this is because this thought process was already in Second Temple Judaism. Because whenever you look at the literature of Second Temple Jude- Jewish history, uh, which is between f- uh, 516 BC and AD 70, you, you face a number of ideas about personified wisdom, personified word, personified mimra, which is also means word, personified logos, things like that. And so we're going to talk about that for a second. Now, during this time, uh, the second simple period, we have a lot of literature, and that includes what's often called the Apocrypha, uh, what's called the Pseudepigrapha. Then you have Josephus, the Jewish writer, uh, Philo, the, the Jewish um, uh, philosopher, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Targums. Uh, and to briefly explain the Targums, the Targum is a term that is an Aramaic translation or interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. So a Targum is any of the several translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic when Aramaic became prominent among the Jews. And they're typically combinations of literal renderings of the biblical text with supplemental or additional materials for um, exposition or interpretation. And most of these were written between the 1st and 7th centuries A.D., during the rabbinic periods, but uh, they were products, as it is debated, of oral traditions that existed prior to that time. Now, the most literal Targum was written in the 1st or 2nd century, um, and the Palestinian Targum was written around the early 3rd century, uh, which contains more additional details. The most paraphrased one is Pseudo-Jonathan, as it adds to the other Targum's materials. If I can summarize it in contemporary language, the Targums were essentially like the New Living Translation or the Living Bible, where there's a paraphrase and explains what it's saying um, via some type of translation. Oxford bibliographies summarize it like this. The Targums additional material provides a window into the exegetical and theological history of Judaism in the centuries following the temple's destruction. It reveals lively theological debate in which their writers strove to determine how Judaism could continue its vibrancy and relevance despite the loss of a central institution of worship in the temple. Sometimes Targums follow interpretations found in rabbinic literature. Sometimes they follow their own interests in exegesis, and sometimes they directly contradict rabbinic literature. So this is all to say that second temple literature is diverse and Targums really just give us some insight. And so it's remembering again that the reach and set impact of these materials is varied and the debate around their application is also varied. So my primary stressing point is that minimally there is some type of precedence for seeing this connection between Judaism and New Testament writers and Jewish beliefs, particularly when it comes to this notion of a pre-existent and personified wisdom, word, memra, logos, and Torah. So in some rabbinic literature, you'll find the Torah being identified with the wisdom in Proverbs. And you'll see the Torah being the instrument or the blueprint for the creation of the world. And you'll see this especially as rabbinic tradition developed and moved away from Logos or Sophia, that is wisdom, um, to a more personified Torah, where the Torah is more central and prominent. So this idea of personified word or Logos or Mimra has grounds in the Old Testament too, really, but we're not going to go into that too far. Chad Bird has a great book that briefly touches on it called uh, The Christ Key, worth checking out. But really, whenever we get to the Targums, these these paraphrases and interpretive um, translations, you find personified wisdom or the personified word being included in texts such as 
Genesis 1, 1 through 3, during the creation account, uh, where the wisdom or word, Mimra, is God's instrument of creation, which is very similar to the Logos in John 1, right? Uh, but particularly Proverbs 8, and Proverbs 8, which will have to be discussed at length in the next episode, you find that in Proverbs 8, wisdom is possessed by God before creation, and the Greek in Targum tradition will describe wisdom as being begotten by God. And so whenever we look at other Second Temple uh, writings, there's the Book of Wisdom, uh, which is also called the Wisdom of Solomon or Pseudo-Solomon, and it's a work including the Apocrypha, and it dates between the 2nd century BC and the 1st century AD. In chapter 7, verse 22 through 26, we read of the wisdom as being the fashioner of all things, as the breath of the power of God, the emanation of pure glory of the Almighty, the radiance of eternal light, and a spotless mirror of the activity of God and the image of his goodness. And this theme of wisdom as God's companion in creation continues as well. Another example of this is in Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, which was written about 200 to 175 BC, and it has similar notions. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 15, the literature describes how God created wisdom before all things and how wisdom dwells with creation in this work. Wisdom is connected with God's word and command. Uh, it says, quote, the fountain of wisdom is the word of God in the highest. In chapter 24, 1 through 23, wisdom is depicted again as saying, I come forth from the mouth of the Most High and before the foundations of the world were established. Now, particularly interesting is the depiction of the word, Mimra, um, or Logos, in Philo. Philo of Alexandria was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher who lived around 20 BC to 50 AD. And his articulation of the Logos, that is the word that we translate as word in John 1, 1, is highly discussed in relation to John. You go research it, go down that rabbit hole. It's very interesting. Now, there are significant, notable distinctions between John's Logos and Philo's Logos, but there are also significant overlaps. For Philo, the Logos is the instrument which God used for creation. And we find Philo describing the Logos as reasoning and the divine word, and he eventually connects it to a type of second God that is with God. So connecting Philo with this personification of wisdom that existed prior to Hellenization, it's pretty interesting nonetheless. Um, one scholar notes that Philo's Logos is, however, only a prerequisite for John's Logos, not the omnipotent key for the Logos. On the one hand, on the basis of Philo's Logos, the mutual interactions between Jewish Logos and Christian Logos involved the particular theological development of the Yohane Logos, that is John's Logos, as second God. And on the other hand, on the basis of Jewish exegetical practices, the personification of wisdom in relation to Torah, Word, and Memra influenced the notion of John's Logos as the incarnate Logos. And like I said, there's articles and journals till the cow comes home on the relationship between Philo and uh, John. But another scholar, A.H.I. Lee, would argue that neither Jewish angiology or pre-existent Messiah ever exerted sufficient influence on early Christology in regards to Jesus' divinity or pre-existence, but that it was through Christian understanding of the pre-existent Son of God from texts such as the Psalms and Jesus' own self-understanding that drove it. He would argue, in the words of Andreas Kostenberger, uh, who says, rather, the early Christian understanding of Jesus as the preexistent Son of God, aided by messianic exegesis of certain psalms, led 
it to express this conviction by using Jewish wisdom traditions. Hence, the church expressed the implications of this conviction that Jesus was the Son of God, namely that Jesus was active in creation and co-eternal with God the Father in terms provided by Jewish wisdom literature. Uh, thus, the latter were not the source for the church's understanding of Jewish's pre-existence, but rather were one way expressing the implications of this conviction at which the church had arrived on different grounds. Kind of interesting there, food for thought. Um, so as stated before, our interest is not so much these debates around the wisdom literature and the personification of the word, um, but they are tied to this to some extent whenever we get to Justin Martyr, right? Um, and to other Christians because of the begottenness of the son and the use of Proverbs 2 and Proverbs 8. So this long-winded introduction is really just to pull the strings together and say that the Christians did not pull this out of a hat. And it's really tempted to go beyond 381 to Augustine and Calvin because they have very helpful discussions on the subject. But we're going to limit ourselves to uh, the 381 and pre-381 discussions. So Justin Martyr, as we discussed in our historical survey prior, he was one of the key writers on the so-called wisdom Christology. And in fact, his dialogues provide compelling details regarding some of the issues that we've already discussed. Uh, for Justin, the Logos, or the word, is eternally with the Father, but not eternally, emphasis on eternally, begotten or generated. Instead, the Logos comes forth from the Father as God's first act of creation, and he notes that the Son was begotten of the Father before all creatures. Thus, the generation of the word is compared, for Justin, as the rational mind expressing itself in a rational word. So this generation of the word is when God speaks and sends forth his word. Um, so as others, Justin ultimately compares this to the light from the sun and notes that this light is indivisible and inseparable from the sun in the heavens. And to defend his position, Justin will use those texts that speak of Jesus as begotten of the father, God's offspring, first begotten, um, his firstborn, his child, or unique or monogamous uh, son. And so Justin, like others who will speak to generation of the son, leans in on the father is the unbegotten God while the son is the begotten God. He further points out that the Bible uses human language of generation to express the son's relationship with the father, accounting for our usage of the language ourselves. And Justin will appeal to Proverbs 8, Psalm 2, Isaiah 53, and we'll discuss those later. For Irenaeus, um, he was most concerned with combating the Gnostics of his day, and so he, he didn't really say much in terms of generation, but he does point out that the Father brings forth his Son, and the Son is the Logos, the eminent reason. And he points to Isaiah 53, 8, and he says, and against heresies 2.28, If anyone therefore says to us, How then was the Son produced by the Father? We reply to him that no man understands that production or generation, but the Father only who beget, and the Son who was begotten. He further points out that the Logos has coexistence with the Father in eternity, but it's unclear whether or not he holds to eternal generation or generation in the sense of just a martyr where it's at creation that the Father sends out his word. Next, we'll talk about Tertullian and his work against the modalists would be significant as we discussed prior. Uh, for the modalists, they taught that God is one person manifesting as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for the modalists, there was no clear, essential, or eternal divine self uh, differentiation. So Tertullian would write that God, the father made the son equal to him by proceeding from himself. He became his first begotten son because he is begotten before all things. Uh, so it seems unclear, but it could be said that Tertullian indicated a view similar to Justin in terms of the beginning of the son occurring before creation, but not eternally. Uh, Tertullian argued, however, that when one speaks of the son as generated by the father, 
there is an inherent and necessary um, difference from the father. The father is thus distinct from the son. He says, um, he who generates is one and he who is generated is another. In his work against Praxis, he actually says, um, if you want me to believe what you believe, you, you have to show me some passages where it is declared that I, the Lord said to himself, I am my only son and today have begotten myself or against before the morning did I beget myself. And likewise, I, the Lord possess myself in the beginning of my ways for my own works before all hills too, did I beget myself. Um, so basically he used the same argument we would use against modalism, but in terms of the generation. So like those who came before him, Tertullian would look to Psalm 2 in Proverbs 8 most notably. Now, origin, uh, for origin, God is triune for all eternity, and he states that there was never a time when the Son was not. The Son, like the Father, is eternal, and he stresses the uh, incorporeal nature of God. The Son is God's wisdom, or logos, a second divine hypostasis, and the Spirit is a third divine hypostasis, and both are God in nature and being. But for origin... There is this tendency to go subordinate. Uh, there's The Son is subordinate to the Father, not just in functional terms, but literally of a lower ranking and level. Because for origin, the Father is the unbegotten fountainhead of deity, uh, the origin or the source of the Son and the Spirit. And he speaks of the Father's willing of the Son into existence, and thus the Son and Spirit are God, not in the fullest sense of the term. Uh, God the Father is God himself and true God while the the Son is lesser God and the Spirit is lesser God than the Son. And this really comes to this idea of uh, middle Platonic ideology where uh, the cause of something is always superior to uh, that which is caused because what is caused does not participate fully in the being of ultimate cause. Um, so basically, when there is a first cause, that which is caused finds itself being diminished in power and ultimately, in this case, divine being. So he, he speaks of the Son, Logos, or Wisdom as being generated and born as the Father's only begotten. And he points out that the Son's generation is an eternal generation that is everlasting. And it's this eternal dynamic relationship that's characterized by continuous aspect in that it's eternal in the sense of continuous and before time. It's atemporal, right? It's before anything in time existed. Uh, so despite that subordinationism, uh, origin points to eternal generation to stress the unity of the Father and the Son in nature and being. The Son is uniquely Son by the nature he shares with the Father, but he's still um, lesser in measure. Um, so many will point out that the key difference between origin and the Arians is that Arians declared that the Son does not share in the divine nature or being of the Father, while origin, despite his diminishing of the status of the Son, claims that the Son does share and the divine nature. Origin, like Irenaeus, would also note that we shouldn't compare eternal generation to human begetting. So there, the consistent theme with all this, we cannot compare the eternal generation of the Son to human begetting. Moving on to Athanasius, Arianism would come and teach that God is an eternal monad who creates the Son in time. And of course, the key text for the Arians was actually Proverbs 8.22, which says, the Lord created me at the beginning of his work. So even the Arians used Proverbs. Uh, for the Arians, the Son of God truly was the only uniquely begotten God, but as one created in time. So not only did the Arians subordinate the Son in being as a creature, but they also subordinated him in terms of power. 
And the subordination and authority or power would actually be a crucial element in Arianism, especially with that emphasis on the the will for the Arians. And we talked about that with the historical survey and soteriology of Arians. Um, so basically, the son as the subordinate lived a perfect life of creaturehood as a model for humans who would follow him. Now, in our historical survey, we talked about the problem of language with hypostasis and usia. Um, but there was also another discussion that was difficult, and that was because of the term genetos being made or created, or genetos being begotten or born. I, I made, I try to emphasize that there's two ends in the English transliteration or two news in Greek. Uh, so you have genetos and genetos. Uh, the difference for listeners is kind of hard to catch if I didn't make that weird emphasis. Uh, anyway, the Arians would take these terms as synonyms. So to be made or created was to be begotten or born. Uh, for them, they were interchangeable. Um, but for the Nicenes, however, there was a big difference between being created in time and eternally begotten. So Athanasius would stress that to say the Son of God is a creature meant that he could not perfectly reveal the Father because he was not of the same divine being as the Father. Uh, further, he could not save because only God can save, and he could not be worshipped because only God is to be worshipped. Athanasius, in his work, Discourse Against the Arians, he lays out several arguments. First, God did not become a triad, but he was eternally a triad or trinity. To call the Father the eternal Father denotes an eternal Son, unless the Father was not the Father before having the Son. Fathers beget children of the same nature or being, and so the Son has the same nature or being as the Father. The Father and the Son are one in being, and to say otherwise is to insult both the Son and the Father. He would argue that it is impossible to separate the Father from his image or word, just as it is impossible to separate the Son from its radiance, and most crucial for us in particular, Athanasius would point out that the eternal distinction between the Father and Son should be understood as the eternal generation of the Son. This generation is something that occurs within the life of God, rather than something external to God or something that is an act of the will. He would argue from texts that speak of God's begetting a royal son and the divine wisdom before creation, while stressing that human language is faulty in understanding generation to its fullest. For Athanasius, the terms father and son are biblical distinctions that are crucial. Further, when God has created, there is a creation in time, but the son is not in this category. He is eternally begotten, not made. And Athanasius will appeal to Psalm 145, 3, John 1, 3, Hebrews 1, 2. Uh, Athanasius says, God is the eternal fountain of his proper wisdom, and if the fountain be eternal, then his wisdom must also be eternal. And he would also state that the Father cannot be without his image. So generation is a divine self-differentiation, and this is attested by appealing to texts, which again, as Proverbs 8 and Psalm 2, on the basis of New Testament usage of them. When the Arians would appeal to Proverbs 8.22 to say that the Son was created in time, Athanasius objects in light of the entirety of Scripture— he says that the Bible as a whole teaches that the Son is not a creature, but the eternal Son and proper offspring. So he would, like others, say that Proverbs 8.22 speaks of the manhood of Jesus and the economy towards humanity, and that the eternal beginning of the Son is spoken of in verses 25 through 26. Um, against the Aaron idea that begotten must also mean created, Athanasius points out that what God created in time is creation, and that which is outside of time is divine. The Son is unique in that the Son alone is from the Father. God creates the temporal, but the Son is co-creator and begotten. When speaking about the eternal begetting of the Son, he stresses that human begetting should not be the measure of the Son's begetting. 
And he stresses that we cannot think of eternal generation in a bodily or material sense. Um, and like others, he compares it to the sun and the light. So the sun is the expression of the father's person as light from light and power or the very image of the father's essence. So the theme of God from God, light from light, true God from true God within the creed is actually an articulation of eternal generation. And Athanasius would argue that to reject eternal generation would open the door to modalism or polytheism. Lastly, we'll talk about the Cappadocians, and we're just going to talk about the key points because they wrote a lot. They spent the most on the eternal generation of the sun. Uh, the Cappadocians found themselves arguing against hyper-Aryans, if you will. Uh, they held that the Father and Son are unlike in being, and that God the Father is alone eternal, and God's essence is defined by his unbegottenness. And this is what makes God God for these hyper-Aryans. So the Son was created in time, and this does not constitute the sharing or passing on the divine nature. Rather, the Son is the product other than God and external to God, period. Uh, the Son is still monogamous. He's still only unique in this view because he was alone created by the power of the unbegotten one, um, but he's still ranked lower in subordinate and authority and status. Now, Basil will argue that this teaching seeks to explain the divine begetting in a human way, he argues that this cannot be correct because the text such as John 1.1, 1, 1, where the word is with God and is God from the beginning. Further, he'll argue texts where the scriptures speak about the sun as light that comes into the world, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God, God's wisdom, etc. Essentially, God can never be without his image, radiance, wisdom, or righteousness. If God the Father is eternal, then the Son must too be eternal. And if the Son is eternally begotten, then he is of the same being and power as the Father. He points out that making human comparisons causes issues because of our limited ideas and that we are limited to the temporal understanding uh, and that it will inevitably bring about ideas of subordinationism. But he also points out that the father is called the father in distinction to the son, who is also God because they are one in usia or nature. So these names are not optional names, but are relevatory names that indicate a community of being. Basically, because these names are used, they should be taken seriously as serious distinctions. When speaking to the taxis or the order of persons, Basil uses the image of fire and light. The fire is the cause of light, but the fire and light cannot be separated in time or rank. Uh, for Basil, what makes the divine person distinct is their relations or properties expressed by their proper names of father and son, uh, which indicates their relationship of origin. That is, the father uh, begets and the son is begotten. Uh, the names, father and son, are relevatory of realities. The two Gregories will ultimately follow and expand on Basil, but we're just going to summarize it here. Uh, the Cappadocians see the Father as the cause or the source or origin of the Son and Spirit. This, for them, is implied in the terms unbegotten, begotten, and procession for the Holy Spirit. Unlike origin, however, the Cappadocians reject the notion of subordinationism or hierarchy, and Augustine will lead the West post-381 in putting stress on the divine essence as the main point of unity, uh, in the Western tradition, while the Eastern Church tends to focus on the unity within the Father. So, in conclusion, ultimately, eternal generation was crucial for all of the early church in that it made distinct the Father and Son contra modalism, yet retained the divinity of the Son and Spirit contra Arianism, and just as well, it maintained the unity of the power of God contra subordinationism, while also retaining the reality of the unique Sonship of Christ in relation to the Father that we see in Scripture. They all agreed that our understanding of this generation is limited. We cannot fully understand it or comprehend it or compare it to human generation, um, but it was necessary because that is how 
the father and son are distinguished in scripture. So the question would be, whenever we move on to the next episode is, is there biblical support for this idea?